welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. You'll probably have to excuse my voice today. I have been sick for the last week without a voice, and it's kind of hard to operate in this world without a voice. You kind of have to do little hand signals and stuff, and everyone thinks you're a mime. They throw money at you, so it's not all downside. So I guess it gave me probably a little bit more time to focus on, like, Facebook discussion. That and There's this Calvinist that uh, was on Facebook, and he posted an excerpt from Romans 9, and it was about the potter and the clay. The potter and the clay. Romans 9.21 Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, Paul's not just pulling this out out of nowhere. He's not just making up some sort of example about potters and clays. You see this illustration used throughout the Old Testament, and the primary example, primarily this comes from Jeremiah 18. So in today's episode of God is Open, we're going to be talking about Jeremiah 18, and we're going to talk about reading comprehension. Reading comprehension is something that we very much champion on God is Open. So everyone can flip to Jeremiah 18. We'll get back to Romans 9 eventually. And incidentally, this is one of the few times that Paul's actually quoting the Old Testament in context for the same purpose as his quote. And so that's a little humorous to me. We've talked before about how Paul and other people quote the Old Testament, and how it's not necessarily direct or exact. But in this case it is. And so Jeremiah 18 is very relevant to the discussion of Romans 9. Jeremiah 18, it stars the prophet Jeremiah, and it starts with Jeremiah receiving word from God. And God tells him to arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And so Jeremiah writes, he's writing in the first person, he says, Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the will. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, and he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. So what this is, this is like a little story, and it uh, takes place in real life, but it illustrates something, and it illustrates something about God. And so when people use examples like this, you know, it's, it's to illustrate parallel concepts or parallel points. And this is great, and Jeremiah 18 is great, because it's all about reading comprehension. What does the parable say? What's happening in the parable? And then how does it relate to God's point at hand that God is trying to make? And the great thing about this, I mean, how would a Calvinist take this verse? How would they take Romans 9, the parable of the potter and the clay? They'll say, God just kind of shapes us and molds us, and we have no choice in the matter. And so when we look at how that's used throughout the Bible, is that what this is trying to illustrate? Just reading comprehension, the example, you know, is is that the parallel concept that's going on here? So did the potter, in the example... Did he finish what he set out to do? No, he didn't. He didn't finish what he set out, what he thought he was going to do. He was trying to make it, but then the clay mars in his hand. Was the clay marring, was that his fault? Does does the illustration, does that seem like it's the potter's fault that the clay is being marred? It doesn't. It, it sounds like, instead, that there's something that goes bad in the clay, and so... Now he's got this bad clay in front of him. He's not just going to toss it out, but he's going to still use that clay, even though the clay is bad, even though it didn't fit what he originally tried to do with that clay. He's going to try to make it into some other vessel, something a little bit less valuable, something that he could still work with and use and probably sell in the example. 
But we don't get any sense in this parable that this is about him just shaping whatever he wants out of anything and uh, nothing can ever thwart his will or something like that. And that's how the Calvinists want to use verses like this. They will literally quote Jeremiah 18 to try to make this point. And so that's what's great about this verse because this verse, you don't have to sit and wonder. You don't have to try to guess to yourself what this parable means. You don't have to guess what this illustration is trying to communicate. Because in the text, in Jeremiah 18, the meaning of the parable is explained. We don't have to sit back. We don't have to do any guesswork. And so does the meaning, does the illustration, does the explanation of the parable, does that line up with Calvinist theology, how they try to use these verses about God shaping and molding and stuff like that, about God's sovereignty, and he just does whatever he wants or whatever and controls everything, and we have no free will. You know, it doesn't. Just think, just think. The potter, he's reacting to circumstances as they arise. He didn't foreknow these circumstances were going to happen, and instead he's using innovation to react the best way possible to changing events, events that he didn't cause and events that he didn't foresee, and he's making the best out of a bad situation. And that's what's going on in this illustration. Let's read the explanation and see who has a better understanding of what this is illustrating. What I just told you right now, or the Calvinist understanding of these verses. Real quick, let's read what Calvinist James White has to say about Jeremiah 18. He says, Just as we have to express our amazement at the insertion of acts of free will into Romans 9.16, so too here we cannot help but point out that the main point of the entire passage is overthrown and literally contradicted, all to maintain a supremacy of free choices of men. Read Jeremiah 18 and see if the point of the parable of the potter and the clay is that there is something in the clay that determines what the potter will do. The parable shows God's complete sovereignty over the nation of Israel, he can do with the nation as he wishes. He is not limited by free choices of people. Surely he calls the nation to repent, beginning in verse 7. But upon what principle of logic or hermeneutics are we to believe that the actual point of the parable is that the clay can force the potter's hand either by its sin or its repentance? So this kind of thinking, this kind of thought is standard Calvinist uh, pseudo-psychobabble. They think that if I'm a parent and I have a kid, and my kid does something, and I react to that, then the kid is forcing my hand, or the kid has power over me, and I'm not all-powerful, or something like that. That's not how we think about the world. That's a weird Calvinist understanding of power and sovereignty. The point of Jeremiah 18, and we talked about this, is that God can respond powerfully to events as they occur, unseen events. But in James White's mentality, this is not an option. He says, that's not what this is about at all. He's like, how can people read this and see that that's even a possibility? How that, that's a point. How can we see free will in this? How can we see free will in this passage is what he thinks. So let's figure out if his reading comprehension is any good or if it's just terrible reading comprehension skills. The parable gets explained. And let's read the explanation that God gives for his own parable that we've already determined through our own reading comprehension skills, and we'll see whose reading comprehension skills are better, our reading comprehension skills or James White's reading comprehension skills. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, 
As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. So taking all bets, in the book called The Potter's Freedom, A Defense of the Reformation and a Rebuttal to Norman Geisler, Chosen but Free, you know, does James White, does he ever talk about God's own explanation for the parable of the potter? Does he ever talk about what God sees as God's own role in the parable? So turning to James White's his little scripture index, he mentions Jeremiah 18a, and he mentions it once, and it's in the context of him talking about Israel. And it's not in the context of God's dealings with those people. It's not in the context of what does God think and how does God act or something like that. He just, James White, in his book about the potter's freedom, just completely skips God's own explanation of the potter parable. Unbelievable. So let's just dissect what God says is the function of this parable. Remember what we said. We said God has, God's a potter and God has this clay and he wants to make it into something good. But then there's something in the clay that is corrupted. And so God can't make what he wanted to make. And he has to come up with on the fly something else to make it. He's not just going to throw it away. I mean, he could throw it away, but he's a skilled potter, right? And so he's going to just, he's going to mold and shape it into another useful thing even though he can't make what he originally wanted to make, he's still going to use that thing, but not how he wanted to use that. And so that's exactly what God says is the point of this. And and this is about nations in Jeremiah 18. And we got also Ezekiel 18 that talks about how God deals with individuals in the same sense. But in Jeremiah 18, um, he says, well, what instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down, and to destroy it. So, so God pronounces against a nation. And he says, I'm going to destroy you, you terrible people. Think about the Nineveh example. It's a prime example of what's going on here in Jeremiah 18. He says, if that nation against whom I have pronounced, I mean, why did he pronounce against them? He, because he wanted to destroy them, because they were being evil. And he actually thought he's going to destroy these people. If, a, if that nation against whom I pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And keep that in mind. God thinks he's going to do this. God imagines that he's going to have to destroy these people. And in Jeremiah 18, explicitly it says that God is not going to do what he thought he was going to do. This passage completely destroys any sense of future omniscience or anything like that because God is not doing what he thought he was going to do. And in, in Calvinism and classical theism, that is a wrong belief because the future is all known and the future is all set. And that would, be, that would be bad of God to think something that's not true. Open theists, as open theists, we understand, you know, you could have thoughts about the future, but the future is not something that exists where you could have, like, wrong thoughts about the future where there's truth value to any statements about the future you could have predictions you could add, have accurate predictions and you could quote unquote know things about the future but the, the future is not set 
that it has some sort of truth and value so that people, you know, are like wrong, wrong, like, like they're believing something factually incorrect. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that in the Bible either. Jeremiah 18, they're not saying God knows things and God's always wrong. They're just saying, you know, sometimes things change. And even though you have a good understanding of what's going to happen or what you're going to do, you know, circumstances change and they change things. So here's what I like about Jeremiah 18. There's two parts to this. I mean, he talks about what happens if there's like an evil kingdom that he wants to destroy and then they repent. But he also talks about what happens to good nations. And he says, At what instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it up and plant it. If it do evil in my sight and it not obey my voice, then I will repent of the good wherein I said I would benefit it. And so let's notice something going on here. In Jeremiah 8, it says he's going to repent of something he thought to do. And in Jeremiah 10, it says he's going to repent of something he said to do. It's using different words. And the ESV, if you guys would use the ESV, it translates those words as the same word. And that seems to me very dishonest for what's going on here. This this author in Jeremiah 18 is emphasizing that this is an, a legitimate, actual change it just can't just be dismissed oh they're using this word and it's just like a metaphorical word and we gotta ignore it he's using different words to emphasize the point that god might think something god might say something but that something might change based on circumstances and the word repent that's used of god is the same word for repent used of man throughout the bible and it's the same word for repent that's used in Genesis 6 and 1 Samuel 15. This is like legitimate repentance. Uh, there's there's no clearer way to describe repentance than not only saying God's repenting and then also describing it that he thinks he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it. And then he says he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it. How, how clear could the Bible be that God is repenting and deciding to change doing something other than he was going to do that that's what repenting is it's not about sin repentance but it's about changing how clear can the bible be i mean this is case closed and this is an explanation of a parable and so when i was talking to that romans 9 calvinist you know he said about jeremiah 18 oh that language is all anthropomorphic well yeah that does us very little good if God is explaining parables and illusions using additional parables and illusions, wow, we're still left in the dark because that didn't really explain anything to us, did it? You would think that when God is explaining what he's meaning, he's going to be using very precise language. And and the illusion or the illustration, that's the thing that it might be the metaphorical thing. The classical theism, Arminians, Calvinists, they have to really stretch the bounds of reading comprehension of biblical interpretation to try to change this verse, this chapter, these various verses into something that they are not, something that they are explicitly describing against and in the most clear terms and both using both illustration and explanation of illustration. It takes really strong intellectual dishonesty, disintegrity, and really strong faith in whatever theology you're bringing to the text in order to just supplant what's going on, what's being described in this chapter. James White, he is a little correct when he talks about this verse is about sovereignty. 
But sovereigns, kings, in any culture, anywhere, they've never been like complete micromanager, control freaks, controlling everyone's every action down to the most minute detail. That's not what a sovereign does. That's not what a king does. What a king does is like he enforces law. Like there's a criminal or something that uh, like murders someone or steals and the king will pass judgment on him and kill that guy. And that's an exercise of sovereignty. And so what God is doing here is he's doing that. It's not like the robber or the murderer. He doesn't have free will because there's a sovereign king in the place. And no, he still has free will. But the sovereign king, the sovereignty is just that his power is absolute. This, this robber or this murderer is not going to get off when the king is pronouncing against him and has him in custody. That's what it means to be sovereign. James White, he brings this idiosyncratic idea of sovereignty to the text that he just forces onto the text and just assumes it as what the text is trying to proclaim. But no, the text is not trying to proclaim that at all. The text is trying to proclaim that God, he's not just going to win when an actor that he's trying to use or actor that he's trying to destroy. When those actors change, God is still sovereign. God can still do stuff with them. It's, just not, it's not like God's plans are just now absolutely ruined and now God is uh, left uh, just hanging without anything that he can do. God could react to the circumstance. He can't do what he originally wanted to do. God can't do what he was intending to do. But he could still do stuff with those people for his own purposes. And let's keep that in mind when we're talking about Romans 9, when we flip back to Romans 9, because this is what Paul is telling the Jews, and the Jews are Paul's audience in Romans 9, and he's, that's what he's telling the Jews that God is doing with their nation. And it's really funny because Paul has a hostile audience, and they're not going to take very kindly to his use of this parable against them. So now I'm going to play a clip from a Romans 9. It's I always Google Romans 9 sketchbook, and it's the first link, but it's called Read Scripture Series, Letter to Romans, chapters 5 through 16. And this gives a really succinct overview of the letter of Paul to the Romans and what Paul's purpose was. And so let's play a clip from that. God's renewal of humans is just one part of his larger mission to rescue and restore the whole universe. God's purpose is a renewed creation where his love gets the final beautiful word. That's the flow of thought in chapters 5 through 8, and it raises a question. If all of this was God's purpose, then what now about Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? That's what he explores in chapters 9 through 11. He begins in chapter 9 with his own anguish over Israelites who don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But he also reminds us that this rejection is not a surprise to God. And so he retells the whole story of Israel in really condensed form to make two points. First, he shows how God has always been graciously selecting a subset of Abraham's descendants to be the line of promise. And Paul's implying that now the line of promise is carried on by those Israelites that accept Jesus as their Messiah. Second, he also reminds us that this is not the first time that people have rejected God's will. He brings up the story of Israel in the golden calf. He brings up Pharaoh's rebellion to remind us that God was able to bring good out of people's rejection for his own redemptive purposes. So everyone should listen to that full YouTube video. I think it was uh, Gregory Ricketson who first uh, cued me into this video, who first posted it, and it was just an excellent video. 
And the guy really understands what he's talking about. He might get a couple of small details wrong, but, you know, it's a great little fast clip and it's a nice illustration. And so I always post it in response to these Calvinists who just have zero understanding of what's going on in the book of Romans. They don't understand the context and they think it's all about God picking people like specific individuals for heaven and hell. It's like, you guys just don't get it. You guys it just, just read the verses, what's going on. And so Paul he uses the illustration from Jeremiah. And remember back to that YouTube clip. What was he saying? He's saying the examples that are being thrown out in Romans 9 are examples of God making good things out of bad situations. And what did we talk about was the purpose of the parable of Jeremiah 18. What was, what was the explanation of the parable? Is that God can react to circumstances and make good things happen, even though people choose to reject him. God can respond to events dynamically. And it's not like God, if if he's presented with a challenge or someone doesn't want to worship him and stuff, he can't he can't do anything and his hands are tied. God could just try to use that event for some sort of good. And that's what Paul's using that for in Romans nine. And these Jews in Romans nine, they thought, well, you know, I am I'm Jew. And I'm going to be saved for the sake of being a Jew. Just a couple of weeks ago, we posted on Matthew 3, and we explored this in detail. But the Jews seriously believed that they were going to be saved for sake of being Jews. They thought they were elect. They thought they were Calvinist elect, where, you know, it's just sure that they're going to heaven because they got this special designation. And what John's point was in Matthew 3 is absolutely not. Absolutely not are you solidified as being saved for being part of the elect. That's not how these things work. People are free will, and if you reject God, God can react to the circumstances. And that's what's going on here as well. And Paul's saying, you know, you guys rejected God, and God's using you guys to illustrate a purpose, to show a function. And you know what? He doesn't have to accept you for sake of being Jew. And now he's turned to these Gentiles, because these Gentiles are worshiping him, and he's grafting these people in. And he's rejecting you because of your free choice to reject him. And that's what Romans 9 is all about. And let's read Paul's own conclusion about Romans 9. And remember, James White, he ignores the entire explanation of the Jeremiah 18 parable. And there's a good meme that's going around with John Piper. And it's like, writes a book on Romans 9, forgets to read Paul's own conclusion in 9.30 through 32. And so Paul concludes what his purpose is in Romans 9. He says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled as stumbling stone. He's saying these people had free will, and they rejected God, and the Gentiles had free will, and they accepted God. And that's why God's choosing one over the other. It's all about free will. The last verse in Romans 9, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. It's saying, there's a way that you're not going to be put to shame, and this is Paul's point, by believing in Jesus, believing in Christ, believing in God, and pursuing God, and pursuing righteousness. That's... That's how. Well, that's what distinguishes one group from the other. It's not about God just molding and forcing people into certain patterns. The entire context is against that, and all the quotes are against that. And what Calvinists see is they see God using people who are rejecting him and using those people for a purpose, and they say, oh, God just 
forced them to be that way so he could use them like that. Really? How about let's try reading the context again. Let's try to read what the actual point is. And let's try to use a little bit of a reading comprehension to figure out to what extent we could take these allusions, parables, or illustrations. So let's just take the last five minutes or so just to talk about reading comprehension. There was this debate the other day on the God is Open webpage, and, and people just didn't understand the extent to which my examples applied to the point of my post. And I told my wife, and she's like, you know, you didn't have to really talk about the reading comprehension. You could just kept focusing them back to the original point. You know, I like talking about reading comprehension. What reading comprehension discussions do is it teaches people how to read, and it teaches them not to read in a disingenuous way. A good theological debate is about reading comprehension of the text. And a lot of theologians, Calvinists, Arminians, they don't want to talk about the reading comprehension of the text. They don't want to talk about what the text means, how it's written, you know, possibilities in the text. They don't want to do that because they like their philosophy that they want to bring to the text. And they like building these systematic philosophies that they think are so great and grand. And I don't care about that. That's all stupid to me. I think that we need to be understanding what the text is trying to communicate first and foremost without trying to appeal to some sort of overarching philosophy. And so my thread in God is Open, I used an example and I mentioned moral government theology. And a lot of these people who ascribe to moral government theology, it's like not all of them, but you know, they get really defensive anytime they see that word flash on the screen and they all just rally in some sort of like pack and they swarm in. It's like, I didn't even make any disparaging remarks. I just use an example. And in the example, one of the guys ascribed to moral government theology. And they took that as like me trying to explain what moral government theology is. That No, that is outside the scope of how my example is being used. And so how do I illustrate that to them? I write parallel statements about, you know, I could have used like an example with the same language about feminism or about Honda cars. And I said, do I want to talk about feminism and feminist theory in this example? Do I want to talk about Honda cars if I use an example with Honda cars in it? No, that's absolutely ludicrous. Just use a little bit of reading comprehension skills and you can figure out to what extent the example applies to the overall point being used. So look to see how I use reading comprehension to really control the debate and to really win the debate. Because when you're asking people very specific questions and you're trying to draw parallels between their views and other views, which are direct parallels, and they don't want to answer these simple questions about reading comprehension, you have really shown the audience that this person didn't use very clear understanding. This person just wasn't thinking before they talked, and it makes them look really stupid. And when I start talking reading comprehension, especially these Calvinists, they get really angry. And one guy... He's like, context doesn't matter. Context doesn't matter to, for your verse? All right, you've lost. You're an idiot, dude. In keeping conversations, keeping debates about reading comprehension, it could only help open theists. So we can flip to the Jeremiah 18 text. And now the parable, the example, the illustration, it's a real-world event. I mean, Jeremiah goes to this real-world artisan, and he watches this guy perform. And the parable, it's not about pottery. It's not about teaching people how potters do stuff. And it's not about even about crafting pots. That's besides the point. What is in focus, what is relevant, is the ways in which this action parallels 
God's action. So if a bunch of potter type people came in to criticize this example, they say, well, no, not all potters like do pots like that and the example is super flawed. Now that's all besides the point. That's irrelevant and it's sidetracking what the example is doing. You know, okay, so sure, maybe it might not illustrate the typical potter. It doesn't matter. That's not what the parable is about. It's not about pottery. No one cares about pottery in this text. What is of focus is the ways in which the example illustrates what God does. The potter tries to build something. So God tries to build up a nation. The clay, which is the people in God's example, it becomes corrupted. So the people reject God. Now, what's God going to do? And what does the potter do? The potter doesn't throw away the stuff. I mean, he could. I mean, he could say, oh, this clay is useless and I can't do anything with it and shove it aside. But this guy's a skilled potter. And so he just remakes it into a new pot. And what God does with the people is that he uses them for something else. He might use them to go punish another nation or he might use them as an example of punishment for another nation. God can do stuff. He's, his hands aren't tied. He has options. It might even turn out that most potters, even expert potters, they can't reshape bad clay into other vessels. It might be the case. This this parable is not about pottery. It's irrelevant to the text. And so when the Calvinist comes in and says, this is all about God forcing things into certain shapes and stuff like that. That's, that's not the parallel that's to be brought out of the text. And it's not a text about pottery. It's not a text about forming specific shapes and forcing things into specific shapes. The illustration, the parallel that can be brought out of this example is only in the sense that there's an actor that's responding to events that happen in a skilled way. So Jeremiah 18 is not only a good, solid chapter describing very open theistic beliefs, but it's also a very good chapter to test someone's reading comprehension skills. You could literally take Jeremiah 18 hand it to someone, have them read the parable, have them read the illustration, and ask them what points are interesting in this text, what is the author of the text trying to pull out as the parallels to God's actions, and you could really see if they understand what's being communicated, and you could bounce it off the explanation of the parable that is given in the exact same text. And if they don't get it, if they start going down these Calvinist lines about God shaping stone idols that can't really respond or can't do anything, they don't understand what's going on. So in this way, we know, like James White, John Piper, their reading comprehension skills, just absolute garbage. Garbage. Don't be a James White. Don't be a John Piper. Let's read the Bible and try to figure out what the author's trying to communicate to their audience. If you have any questions or comments on today's episode, feel free to put them on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.